Welcome to Purpose Church. We're so glad you're joining us right now. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are seven days away from Easter. And at the end of our message, I'm going to give you a very clear call to action, some clear next steps for what I believe God's asking us to do for these next seven days as we prepare for the best day of the year, Resurrection Sunday. But before we get there, let me just state the obvious. Questions are powerful. If you think about the best therapists, they don't always tell you what to do. They ask you a question that unlocks something and helps you understand where to go. The best mentors, coaches, parents will oftentimes ask a question that has you thinking in completely different ways. Jesus himself employed this. Did you know that that one author I read this week said that Jesus asked 307 questions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? There's 307 questions from Jesus. Questions are powerful. This past week, I was preaching up at Hume Lake and just had an amazing time with our family, getting to share about Jesus with a group of junior high students. And and amidst these couple hundred junior high students, one of them was a fifth grader named Alice. And, And Alice came up to me at the end of the week and she said, Pastor Eric, I have lots of questions. And her leaders had been telling me that she is constantly coming up with really great questions. And so she asked me probably one of the most difficult questions about the Bible that I've ever been asked before. And can I be honest with you? I had no idea how to answer it. And so I did what probably all of us do. I stalled, right? Like I kind of started to say to her, you're so awesome, Alice. Thank you so much for asking this question. And again, I'm trying to figure out how to answer it. And so I say, Alice, I'm so proud of you that you're asking good questions. In fact, Alice, I double down. I go, Alice, there is no such thing as a bad question. And then fifth grade Alice looks me in the eyes and she goes, Pastor Eric, isn't it bad to ask a woman how much she weighs? (laughs) I started laughing. I said, Alice, there is one bad question and that's it. But then I said, Alice, when it comes to God, there are no bad questions. And today, as we continue our series, Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes of Luke, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. And and Jesus has a big message for us that is essentially asking the question, what's my part in God's story? To give us a little context, let's jump into Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Let me pause here for a second. Passover was a guaranteed time when the religious leaders could ensure that Jesus would be in Jerusalem. You see, a couple hundred thousand Jewish pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so they thought this would be their opportune time to get rid of Jesus. But then there's this this comment at the end of verse 2 that says they were looking for ways to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. In other words... Jesus's impact on people's lives was disrupting the system. 
that the way in which people were beginning to have allegiance to Jesus and following Jesus was disruptive and was worrisome to the religious leaders. And it kind of got me thinking about this question, and I'm not sure who this is for, but, but I've got a question for you, and it's this. Does the way you live put Satan on edge or on vacation? Is there something about the way you live for God? Is there something about the way you obey him? Is there something about the way that you are bold for Jesus in your families, in your friendships, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, that when you wake up in the morning, Satan's on edge because he knows he's going to have to do overtime to get in your way or is your life not threatening to Satan at all? In fact, when you wake up, is Satan like, I can go on vacation. Like there's, there's no issue here. You see, the followers of Jesus were gaining momentum. God was doing something in their midst. And as we look at Luke 22 today, we're gonna see again that God wants to answer the question for us. What's my part in God's story. Maybe you're new to following Jesus. Maybe you've been around for a while and you've kind of lost your vision. Maybe you're in a new season of your life and you're wondering, okay, what is my part in God's story? Number one, know the gospel. Number one, your part in God's story is to know the gospel. Find me in Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his, his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, now why does Jesus say that he is eager? Well, it's because he's about to enter the final chapter of his life. Shortly after this meal, he'll be crucified, he'll rise from the dead, and then he'll ascend to be with the Father. He's incredibly eager for this moment because it will be the fulfillment of why he came. But I also think that Jesus is eager for this moment because he is about to connect the dots between the Passover celebration and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is about to make it possible for his followers, his disciples to experience the gospel and what he would ultimately do in his death on the cross, and in his resurrection. The story continues in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Here Jesus is saying, gentlemen, as we enjoy this together as I share the meaning of this. It is a foreshadowing. It is a taste of what's to come. And I don't think Jesus is just talking about when he rises from the dead and shares some meals with his disciples. Oh no, he is talking about the end of days. He is talking about when he returns again and the new heavens and the new earth are established that when Jesus comes again and we are in the new heavens and the new earth with him, we will enjoy the feast that we have been waiting for. In fact, Paul picks up on this imagery in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. Paul says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, he's talking about the last supper, taking communion as we're going to look at in a minute, you proclaim the Lord's death. 
So in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, you're remembering Christ's death on the cross until he comes. When you've taken communion or I've taken communion, there's something uh, uh, incredibly special about what we are also anticipating. We're remembering what Jesus did for us, but we're also anticipating the day he will return and make all things right and we will be with him for eternity. And then we will see him face to face. In Revelation chapter 22, verse four, Jesus promises that you and I will see him face to face. And I'm just sensing right now in this moment that there's some of you watching or listening right now who you've, you've lost sight of Jesus. That so much has happened in your world. There's so much going on and, and you're just feeling disconnected. You're feeling like you, you've, you've lost that vision for Jesus. And I wanna remind you, to, to, to endure, to persevere, to continue to follow Christ, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging, even when people reject you or make fun of you, continue to follow Jesus because one day you will see him face to face. In verse 19, Jesus says, or it says, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus adds a personal component, a personal nature to his sacrifice. It's not just appeasing some system. Jesus didn't just die randomly. No, 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 it it was intentional that there's a personal nature to the death of Christ. It was a gift for you. It it was a a demonstration of his great and infinite love for you. But it's significant in this historical moment that Jesus is at the Passover table because the Passover bread, when they were celebrating their Passover Seder or their meal, the, the Passover bread always resembled and always reminded them of Israel's affliction while they were slaves in Egypt. But here Jesus is saying, this bread now represents my affliction on your behalf. It now represents me dying on a cross, taking your sins so that you could be free. Then in verse 20, Jesus continues, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Again, Jesus doubles down on the relational nature of his sacrifice, his death and his resurrection, that it is for you and it's for me. You see, the fastest thing in the world is not the speed of light. The fastest thing in the world is not the cheetah. The fastest thing in the world is not your souped up Honda Civic. In fact, the fastest thing in planet earth is the speed of God's grace. In other words, the speed of God's grace is faster than everything else on planet earth. And that's unbelievably good news that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, you and I can be right with God, that that he has forgiven our past, our present, and our future, that God's speed of grace in your life, he wants to deposit his grace into your heart and life, and it's faster than anything else on planet Earth. And yet the disciples, they miss it. As we'll see in a few verses, 
They begin to focus on themselves and they miss what Jesus has just shared with them. He has just shared with them the essence of the gospel, that they would know the gospel. When I was in my very first seminary class, I remember the the, uh, meeting hall that we were gathered in was packed full. And I had the privilege of sitting under the teaching of Dr. Marion May Thompson. She's a brilliant biblical scholar, brilliant theologian. I mean, when you walk into her class, you're feel, you feel like you're with one of the greats. Like we have Dr. Carl Tony here at our church, and I've actually taken seminary classes with him. Felt the same way that when you're sitting under Dr. Carl Tony's leadership and teaching, you just feel the weight of the experience that you're in. I remember my first class with Marion May Thompson. One of the students on the very first day raised his hand and said what is the gospel? And all of us seminary students felt the same things. First off, we thought, man, we should know this. Like we're seminary students. That's a pretty basic question. We should know what the gospel is. But all of us were terrified to answer, terrified in the presence of Dr. Thompson to answer this question. And I'll never forget, there was a silence that fell over the classroom and and Dr. Thompson thought about it for a second. And then she, she said these words, the gospel can be summarized in three words. Jesus is Lord. The gospel can be summarized in three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord means he created everything. Jesus is Lord means that we are accountable to him. Jesus is Lord means that he was the only qualified one to take our place and die for our sins. Jesus is Lord means he was the only one capable of rising from the dead. Jesus is Lord means that we can trust him today with our worries and our pain and our uncertainties. Jesus is Lord means that he knows best, that he loves us the most and his word is true. Jesus is Lord means that he is the king of my life and has called me to join him in bringing heaven to earth through my relationships and my behaviors and my lifestyles and how I spend my time. And Jesus is Lord means that he will be our king forever. And one day he will return and bring complete justice and wholeness and righteousness and we will live with him forever. Can I get an amen in the chat? An amen from the living room couch? An amen from your car? Jesus is Lord. And your part in God's story begins with you knowing that. And the question is, is Jesus your Lord? Jesus desires to be the Lord of all of our lives. And that's the good news of the gospel. But here's the thing. It's not enough to just know the gospel. The second part of your and I role, our role in God's story is to live the gospel. Let's continue in Luke 22, verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. 
a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, we got to pause here for a second. Jesus has just shared the gospel with them, his death and resurrection, that he is the Lord of the Passover, that he's the Lord of the universe, that Jesus is Lord. And all they seem to do is want to argue about who is the greatest. And so what I love about Jesus is he takes them on a theological field trip. Now, now sometimes Jesus wants to do this, not, not just teach them something, but give them a picture, help them begin to make sense of it. You, you remember being in one of those classes where you had a lab or you had a field trip coming up. And, and it's one thing to understand the concepts. It's another thing to experience it, to see it with your own eyes. And that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. Look, in verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. What does Jesus do here? He identifies the problem. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the problem. The world is all about power, exercising authority, and it's all about titles, benefactors. The, the, the world is all about power and titles. But then Jesus says, because you know the gospel, I want you now to live the gospel. It should change the ways in which you live your life. And so Jesus provides the solution in verses 26 to 28. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one, look at Jesus asking all of his questions, is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus' solution to the problem is this. Jesus followers will be all about living the gospel through their lives. The world is all about power and titles. Christians, followers of Jesus are all about living out the gospel with our lives. Now that, that involves an inward component and an outward component component. When Jesus talks about in, in verses 26 and 27, when he talks about the, the greatest instead being like the youngest, I think he's talking about us inwardly. I think God's call on your life and my life would be that inwardly we would be curious and humble. Now, what does it mean to really be humble? I, I love the way that Tim Keller defines humility. He, he says, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness 
brings. I, I read his book every single year. It's like a short book. It's like 60 pages. So if you're not a reader, if you struggle with reading kind of like I do, you want to feel really accomplished about reading a book, pick up his book, The Freedom of self forgetfulness. But he talks about the truly humble person is the person who is so interested in others. Can I just say something? And and I'm so guilty of this. So this is for me and, and maybe it's for you too. That right now in our culture, we show up on social media, we show up to parties, we show up to gatherings, we show up to events trying to be the most interesting person in the room. But maybe the gospel is calling you and I to not be the most interesting person in the room, but to be the most interested person in the room. What would it look like if you showed up to environments interested and curious about what God is doing in other people's lives? Interested and curious about how you can help and serve others? Instead of it being about you, what if your mindset, your mindset shifted and your, your, your gospel focus became about living out the gospel through humility. What about outwardly? Outwardly, we use what's in our hands. Use what's in your hands to bless others. You see, God has given you certain gifts and talents. He's given you strengths and experiences. He's, he's given, you, given you certain advantages. He, he's given you opportunities. He, he's given you influence and different positions. What if you said, because I want to live out the gospel, I'm going to use all that God has given me to bless others and to point others to Jesus. If you have a home or an apartment, how are you using that to bless others? If you have a car, how are you using that to bless others? If you've got influence in your workplace, how are you using that to bless others? You see, this is how we get into the business of living out the gospel. And this is incredibly important because I believe one of the greatest threats to the gospel advancing is when someone knows the gospel but doesn't live it out. Because if the world hears you talking a big game, but the way you live is exactly like them, they will discount the gospel. But if what you know works its way down into the way you live. Now there's power. Now they're seeing a connection and and no longer are are, are our lives a threat to the gospel, but, but God would use our lives to advance the gospel as we know it to be Jesus is Lord. And as we live that out in the way we are humble and curious and serve and bless and love others and tell people about Jesus, which is where we'll get in a minute. It's why James would remind us in James 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In other words, you could be listening to God's word and still be deceived if you're not living it out. But, but I want to go back to verse 27. Let's go back to Luke 22, verse 27, because I think there's something interesting to notice here. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. This is Jesus modeling something for you and I. This is Jesus saying, I will never ask you to do for others 
what I have not already done for you. So is Jesus asking you to love that really difficult person at work? Yes. Why? Because he loves them and because he loves you. Is Jesus asking you to lay down your pride, to be humble, to learn something that you didn't know before, to show up into rooms interested in others instead of trying to promote yourself? Yeah, because he's done that for us. Does Jesus want you to love your enemies, to forgive, to reconcile? Yeah, because Jesus has done that for you. In fact, I want you to take a minute here and I want you to fill in this blank. I want to serve my blank the way Jesus served me on the cross. This is going to help you and I live out the gospel. That when we connect the ways God wants us to love with the ways he has loved us, it becomes far easier to love difficult people. So who's in your blank? I want to serve my wife or my husband. I want to serve my coworkers. I want to serve my kids. I want to serve my neighbors. Who's somebody that's honestly difficult for you to love and serve? Here's your way to live out the gospel with them, to choose, to make a commitment that you are going to serve them just as Jesus has served you on the cross. I want to talk for just a quick second to the Christians that are tuning in. That if, if you're watching or listening and you're a follower of Jesus, pay, pay careful attention. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to talk to you in a quick second. But, but for those of you that are followers of Jesus, tune in for a quick second. Your life will oftentimes be the first introduction people have to Jesus. This matters. It's not enough to just have good doctrine, to just have good beliefs about Jesus, to just know things about him. You've got to live it out because there's a watching world who is in proximity to you, who is around you, who is taking notice of your life. And oftentimes you are their first introduction to Jesus. So take this seriously. Now, for those of you that are tuning in, watching or listening and and, and honestly, you're, you're searching right now. You're not sure if you're a Christian, you're, you're searching. Maybe you were churched at one point, but, but you're de-churched now or you're, you're, you're not interested. Maybe you would say, man, I'm, I'm, de- I'm deconstructing some of my faith right now. Maybe some of you are hurting. Maybe the church has hurt you. Maybe people in the church that Christians have, have hurt you. And you kind of find yourself in that place. I just want to as kindly and gently as I can, offer something just for you to consider thinking about, and it's, it's this. I want to encourage you to not let a bad experience with a Christian keep you from Christ. I want to invite you to, to not let a bad church experience keep you from participating in the body of Christ, the church. No doubt about it. There are Christian, there are bad Christians out there, there are, which is kind of an oxymoron. There, there are people who are claiming to be Christ that are acting nothing like him. There are churches that are, that are broken. And I happen to think Purpose Church is one of the best out there, but we're not perfect either. But just because you come in contact with, with, with a Christian that, that rubs you the wrong way or that, that hurts you, or, or, or you experience a church somewhere that 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 left you feeling hurt and broken. Don't use that as a, as, a, as a reason to turn away from Christ or to turn away from 
the church. But friends, it's not enough to just know the gospel and live the gospel. There's a last part to God's purpose and plan and your part in his story. And it's this, to share the gospel. God's God's desire for you, your part in God's story is to know the gospel, to live the gospel and to share the gospel. In, In verse 29, Jesus continues, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, he's talking about Peter here. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is clear in this closing section that he is not interested in bystanders, but that he is interested in fully invested participants in his kingdom. That Jesus, our king, has clearly spoken that that the kingdom of God that he represents, that he is building, has now been given to you and I to join him as he builds his kingdom. But then Jesus pays special attention to Peter. It's a really interesting interaction. It's like he, he wants to intentionally love and encourage Peter in this moment. Why does he do that? Because Jesus knows, and in, in, in the rest of the text, you can read this on your own. Jesus knows that Peter will deny him, and yet Jesus still has a purpose for Peter. As I was preparing this message this week, I was kind of thinking that I think there's some of us who, who our past, our past sin, our, our struggles, they've become like wet cement around our feet that have dried up and and left us feeling stuck and and immovable and and feeling like there's no way forward. And Satan loves to make you and I think that there's such thing as cement that could hold us down and keep us from following God. And maybe even that's one of the reasons you're really spiritual is because you're trying to figure out how you could do enough things to earn God's love to get yourself out of that cement. Can I remind you that the gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of your past, your present, and your future. That anytime Satan reminds you of your past sin, you remind him of the gospel. You remind him that Jesus Christ died for your sin, that he pulled you up out of that cement, and that now you can follow him. And so I want to just, just for someone out there right now, I want to invite you to leave your past behind, your sin. Let it go because God has already forgiven it. If you've asked him to forgive it, he's forgiven it completely. And he doesn't want you stuck. He wants you sharing the gospel. Now, now Jesus really doubled down with Peter in, in Matthew chapter 16. This interaction goes like this. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, talking about Peter, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the very first time in the New Testament that the word church is used. And it's important to notice that it's used by Jesus to describe the movement that he is 
building. Now, I love the way Pastor Andy Stanley talks about this word here. He says an ecclesia or church, ecclesia was the Greek word that was used, that Jesus used here as he was describing this church. He says an ecclesia was simply a gathering or an assembly of people called out for a specific purpose. Now, here's the thing. We didn't even pay Andy Stanley to say this. I just love that he put our church name in his quote. This is, this is amazing. Ecclesia never referred to a specific place, only a specific gathering. It meant it was a group of people who gathered together for a common purpose. And the church of Jesus Christ is the gathered body of Christ. This is why you can't follow Jesus alone. In fact, if you read the New Testament and you take it seriously, you cannot believe that you can follow Jesus alone. You were made for the church. You were made for the family of God. And it is the people of God when we're moving together that live on mission. Now, the places we gather are so important and significant. And here at Purpose Church, we're about to open our brand new renovated worship center that we're so excited for all of you to experience. And in that worship center, it's going to be incredible because the people of God are going to gather together. We're going to worship. We're going to grow. We're going to connect with each other. And God's going to do something credible as we gather, as he moves us on mission. I just got to give a shout out to some of our youngest generations who are, who are really embodying this share the gospel role that they play in God's story. Uh, under Pastor JT's leadership, our junior high ministry, along with uh, Pastor Jason and, and Miranda, our coordinator, and Monica, our intern, and, and the amazing volunteer leaders over there, our life group leaders, they've been in a series called Go. And throughout this series, they've been exploring Jesus's great commission to go and make disciples. They've been empowering junior high students, fifth through eighth grade students to share the gospel. I, I got to tell you about this story with, with a, a young woman in our high school ministry. Her name is Abby Atwood. And Abby is just one of my superheroes. The, the other day, Pastor Claire, our associate high school pastor and some of our team of leaders, they went on an urban mission trip here in Pomona. And Abby had the opportunity to sit down to, to a student she met at the park, at a park here in Pomona, sat down and she began to share the gospel with this girl, Alexis. And, and, and Alexis had never seen a Bible before. And as Abby was telling her about the Bible and about Jesus, she, Alexis wanted to see it. And so Abby went and got a Bible and, and showed her verses, showed her John 3, 16 and Romans 10, 9. And, and, and Alexis decided on the spot that she wanted to begin following Jesus. And so Abby walked her through that process. The next day, Abby had the opportunity again to meet another student in the park here in Pomona and to share the gospel. And she gave her life to Jesus. And then no joke, get this, a few days ago, Alexis, that first girl she met who surrendered her life to Jesus, she took the Bible that Abby gave her and she began to read it. She started to tell her friends about Jesus. And then Abby called Alexis earlier this week just to check in on her, just to see how she was doing. And Alexis said, I have all my friends here. I'm putting you on speakerphone. Can you share the gospel with them? Abby shares the gospel with these students and all the friends over the phone surrender their lives to Jesus. You can't make this stuff up. Or, or I think of Ryder Burdett. He, he's one of our student leaders in our high school ministry. And, 
And he is to date, for the last nine years that I've been here as the high school pastor, he is the youngest preacher to speak on the HSM stage to the high school ministry students. And he talked about Christianity. His talk was Christianity 101. And at the very end of it, Ryder, a 16-year-old young man, gave the opportunity for his peers to surrender their lives to Christ. And guess what? Five of them did. Five of his peers committed their lives to Christ because Ryder was willing to share the gospel. You know, it reminds me of a few weeks ago, Pastor Glenn said, said this, there's two things we won't be able to do in heaven, sin and evangelize. I'm so glad there won't be sin in heaven. But when I think about evangelizing, I realize that's something only we can do here and now. That this side of eternity, you and I, this is our moment. This is our opportunity to share the gospel that Jesus is Lord. You see, this coming Friday, we're going to have our Good Friday service here at Purpose Church. I want to encourage all of you to come uh, at 7 o'clock on Friday. We're going to celebrate Good Friday. And then on Sunday, we're going to have Easter Sunday here at Purpose Church at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We're going to have baptisms. We're going to have food. We're going to have amazing worship and teaching. We're going to have lawn games. We have Jana Alira for the kids. This is an incredible opportunity to invite your friends. We're going to have Kevin Nickerson, who's the chaplain of the championship team, the Los Angeles Rams, who recently in an article, he said this, what I try to do is help them understand, talking about his players, to help them understand what they do on Sundays, what they do throughout the week does not define them. We want them to trust God and be with God. If you've got an LA Rams fan in your circle of friends, in your oikos, in your sphere of influence, invite them to Easter. And so here's my clear call to action for every single one of us. I believe this is what God wants you and I to do. He wants you and I to pick our seven. Your seven are the seven people that over the next seven days, you are gonna pray for every day at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. Maybe you're like an Uber Christian, you're trying to get some extra credit points, doesn't exist, but that's okay. Pray at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. for the next seven days. And these are the seven people that you are going to invite to sit with you at Easter with Purpose Church. Who are the seven names in your family, in your circle of friends, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods? Who are those seven people? Pray for them every single day and invite them to sit with you at Easter because prayer could make all the difference in the world. A few months ago, my wife Sarah and I were flying home from Mexico. I had officiated a wedding out in Mexico and I know tough gigs, somebody had to be obedient, somebody had to do it and, and we were flying home and we were in hour two of a three hour flight and I remember just sensing that God was telling me to turn to the guy sitting next to me and to tell him that Jesus loves him. And I immediately just felt like, Lord, like we're wearing masks. Like this is gonna be such a weird conversation. There's all kinds of people around that can hear like, Jesus, I don't know about this. And, and so I just prayed. I said, God, if you want me to tell this guy how much you love him, would you make him put his phone down? Because for the entire two hours, he was glued to his phone. Well, I waited a few seconds and he didn't put the phone down. And I thought, hallelujah, God was speaking to somebody else, not to me. And I turned to Sarah to help her with something she was working on. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy put down his phone. And I look at Sarah and I go, 
Sarah, I, I got to do something. And I look over at him and I say, hey, man, um, I know this sounds really strange, but I just felt like God put it on my heart to tell you that he loves you. Well, the guy started to tear up and he shared with me his name was Jose and he had had a really hard life and there had been significant moments of struggles and challenges and he felt like each time God reminded him that he loved him and that he wasn't alone and that he was going through one of those right now and he needed to be reminded again that Jesus actually loves him and is with him. You see, what could it mean for you to pray for your seven? for you to, to know the gospel, for you to live the gospel, for you to share the gospel and to join God in the building of his kingdom. You see, the, your part in God's story is the greatest adventure. And so to close, I, I just wanna look at the words of, of John Wesley, who in 1755 wrote this covenant prayer that maybe these would be words that you and I could hold on to. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. So what's your part in God's story? It's to know the gospel, it's to live the gospel, and it's to share the gospel. So let's go praying for our seven, inviting them to Easter, and let's watch what God has in store for each of us.